Isaiah 18, beginning, or is that, excuse me, Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 18. And let's listen to the word of God. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God. Have you not heard? Have you not known? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. And let's pray. Our Father, it is your day that you've given to us. A day set aside to be together with one another. A day, O oh Lord, that we have set aside to be taught by your word and by your spirit. And we desire to be taught, but we go weak and needy to our task. It's a long day yesterday, maybe a short night. We come here to energize ourselves with coffee. And yet what we need more is the energy of your spirit. We long to have our lives edified with divine truth that an honest testimony might be borne for you by us. And therefore, O oh Lord, we ask that you would give us assistance in our teaching and in our prayer and in our listening with heart, hearts uplifted for grace and unction. I ask, O oh Lord, that you would present views, that you would help us to see things pertinent to our subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought. May we have proper exposition and fluency and fervency, a feeling sense of things we teach and hear, and grace to apply them to our consciences. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be present, that the meditations of my mouth and of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, that prayer was an adaption of a prayer for ministers from the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayers. So if it sounded more honest and open than my prayers, that's because it's not my prayer. Yes, it is. Well, I've varied it. But it's a great book to have, Valley of Vision. Well, we are talking about the Ten Commandments. We are in Lord's Day 35, dealing with the Second Commandment, no graven images of God. And with last week, we took a look at the First Commandment 
And we let me remind you that the commandments were given by God in order to get Egypt out of Israel, as just as he had taken Israel out of Egypt. And I have put in there the larger Westminster Larger Catechism, question 93, to help you understand what is the law. The law, the moral law of the scriptures is the declaration of God's will for humanity, directing and binding every human being to conform to and to obey it personally, completely, and perpetually. I mean, these are wise people who put together this, this for humanity. It's not simply for the church or for Israel. It is for all. And it is to be done personally, personally, completely, and perpetually. So last week we took a look at the first commandment, and which said we have a sovereign Savior. This week we take a look at the second commandment. Who creates worshipers? And from then we go to the third to the tenth, which is who grow as disciples. There you have one outline of the Ten Commandments. Sovereign Savior creates worshipers who then grow as disciples. Commandment one, Yahweh is the true God over who, who to whom we owe everything in our being, and we are not we are called not to go or possess any other gods. And one way of expressing this is that we are totally committed to him above all else. So that everything else takes second place and finds its real place in the fact that God is our sovereign savior. Today we're going to take a look at at, at the second commandment. Uh, instead of the Exodus passage, I'm going to use the Deuteronomy passage, which is the second giving or restatement of the Ten Commandments. In verse uh, chapter 5, verse 8, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's kind of all conclusive, huh? That was a side note in there. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Or it could be a thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In the NIV, it says idols. Well, we've dealt with idols in the first commandment. The ESV, I think, has it right when it says that we will not have graven images, any likeness of what God is. And that the focus of this commandment is on the true worship of God. What does it mean to, have, to worship God above all else? And... and uh, which in itself signifies something about what we do in worship. And those are some of the subjects we'll talk about. The formula that basically is it. As we worship, we believe. And as we believe, we live. As you worship, you will believe. And as you believe, you will live. Worship defines what you really, really, really believe. So when you go into a service in any church, you're always looking at the worship and how it's done because it'll tell you a whole lot about who they are and what they believe. Uh, as I said, before we came here, almost two, three years ago, two years ago, we visited 17 different churches 
And by the time we were partway through the service, I could tell you what they really believed. We had some churches that were Broadway productions with people up front and the sanctuary was dark and they were singing and they had fog coming in and it was really professionally done. You could tell that they were timing it to the second. And I'm going, well, that's what they really believe. That's what they really want. And the sermon had to end exactly on time. Couldn't go over. I mean, they were Nazis at clock watch. And that's said something about them. Others who were so loosey-goosey, you're going to go, what in the world are they thinking? See, as you worship, so you believe, and so you will live. If we take enough time to take a look at some of the people in those congregations, we may have seen that that's exactly the way they were. In fact, in that one church, everyone was dressed to the, to the nines, to the hilt. And I'm going, hey, these are all CEOs, lawyers, and that's exactly what they believe. On time. 9.30 start, 9.30 start, right? None of this sit in the fellowship and have coffee while you're just waiting for people to come. Present company excluded. Now, this is, this, that's the formula. Um, and you also, in the notes you'll see, I've noted Leviticus 26. If you're using the discipleship journey through the uh, reading, this month you have dealt with Leviticus. And Leviticus 26 talks about the blessings and cursings of how the people of God worship, which sets up everything there. So, we're going to take a look at this in three sections. One, the portrait of God, because the Ten Commandments were meant to portray to us, to all who see it, what, what is God like? Each one has its own portrait of God. And then we take about the prescription of the commandment. What is it saying to us? And then sec thirdly, the pro prohibition of the commandment. What is it telling us not to do? For God is not only a God who says, this you shall do, he is also a God who says, this is what you shall not do. I mean, he treats us just like we teach our kids. Do this, do this. Don't you ever do that. <laughs> and that's sometimes the way it comes out. Let's take a portrait of God. What's the commandment say about him? Well, Isaiah 40 passage I read talks about this. There are two questions in that passage that just outline it. Uh, verse 18 and verse 25. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And this is what God is saying. I, I can't be compared to anything, anybody. I'm superlative. I'm, I'm the most beautiful of all beings. And in the outline, I noted some verses that take a look at what that is. In verse 21, from the foundation of the world, that is, before there was a world, God is eternal. We have problems thinking about what is eternity because our mind are so focused in upon time and upon space. But God is eternal. There never was a moment or anything when God wasn't and isn't. That's where he is. Verse 22 and 26, he stretches out his creation. Hubble spaceship, I think it was a Hubble, who left our solar system and went out, took pictures. And we found out that out there, there is a star that is bigger than the distance of the sun past the earth to the next planet. That's the size of that star. It's just a little tinkle, twinkle in the, in the sky. But that's how big it is. And God stretches out the universe. That's why Star Wars, not Star Wars, Star Trek needs a warp drive. Because you never get there in your own lifetime. Uh, he rules over princes and sovereignties. This is one of the beauties, verse 23. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth his emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth 
when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them away like stubble. None of you were around, well, a few of you were around when Nikita Khrushchev was here. Banging, we will destroy you. Well, he's dead. That's what God does to princes. The summaries in verse 28 and 29. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Did you all have a good sleep last night? Some of you did. God never sleeps. I mean, I go, if I go 18 hours without sleep, I'm going, I'm tired. <laughs> Some of you can go a couple days without sleep, but you're exhausted. God doesn't even need to sleep, anything like that. That's a portrait that God is in. What's superlative God above anything that we could imagine? Then there's a prescription of the command and the question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 96, what does God require in the second commandment? And the answer that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word. The commandment forbids the manufacturing or use of any statue or picture or anything that represents God. Why? Well, God is a spirit. Spirit has no body. Spirit has no form. He's a God who fills the whole universe. He's ever, always present, everywhere, omnipresent. And he cannot be captured adequately by any picture or any representation that we can have. And this, this may surprise you, but part of the study I did was, this even represents Jesus. You know how many Sunday school classes and how many things I see on Facebook that have a picture of Jesus? Well, you say Jesus was human. Yeah, he was human, but he was also divine. And when you put it, do a picture of Jesus, you leave out the divine, which is an old heresy called Nestorism, the division between the divine and the human. Well, maybe we'll put a halo around him and that'll make him look divine. No, no, you you can't picture him. And yet we do that all the time, especially in Sunday school. And some of them are extremely horrendous pictures. We show Jesus with blonde hair and looking like he's Northern European. And he's tall. And he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a big guy. Well, he was Middle Eastern. He had dark hair. He was probably shorter, 5'5", five, five, maybe even shorter than that. Dark complexion. And yet, the image we say is Jesus is a Scandinavian. No. And we've misrepresented him physically. And so the question is, do we even want to show and have any kind of image of Jesus? You know, the Bible is like uh, radio. Radio is TV of the mind. And the beauty of it is you get to use your mind to think about it, but you have to use your mind correctly. You can imagine scenes and what went on. What was it like when the dust fell from the roof as the, as the four men opened up the roof to let down his friend before Jesus in the house? And you can just see the dust coming down. Maybe that's where they get the idea of fog and worship, the dust coming down. But... You can imagine what it was like. What would it be like to be Jesus? And all of a sudden go, is it, is it snowmageddon? Is it raining? No. You can use your imagination that way. You just can't picture Jesus or make a portrait of Jesus. The only pictures of Jesus, and this is from John Calvin, are the sacraments. Because they're the only legitimate portrait of what Jesus is like. And I would add to that, not that I'm on the same level as John Calvin, but I would add to that, and through the preaching of the Word. That's the only picture you can get of Jesus. 
that brings us to the question 98. We skipped 97 because it's the uh, prohibition, but this one helps to explain what I just said. Question 98 in the Catechism. But may not images be tolerated in churches as books, quote, teaching aids, unquote, for the people? Remember, this is the time of great illiteracy when this catechism was written. And in, in before that, most people could not read or write. It's one of the reasons why Jer Luther decided to translate the Bible into common German so that he could then teach the people how to read and write their own language. It's why when missionaries go into a foreign field, they do two things. They write down the language of the people and then they translate the scriptures so that they can teach them how to read and write using the scriptures. That won't fly in America anymore. But it says, no, no. You can't use anything as a teaching aid, as, as if it were a book. No, for we should not be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by dumb idols, but by the lively preaching of his word. The standards, this, in, in essence, this helps us understand why and how we worship. That we are not meant to have stained glass windows. In fact, I sometimes think we ought to have no just plain windows so we can look outside and say that's the world to which we're being called. Or in case of this morning you see the snow start to fall and wonder am I going to get it home after today? After today. But this the whole idea is the sanctuary this, this uh, the, the building where the people of God are not to have any kind of graven images of what God is like except when you expound the word of God and you see the sacraments. And so I put into your outline what's called the Reformed Regulative Principle that comes out of these questions and answers. In worship, the church is to be so guided by Scripture that it must include only those elements for which there is no scriptural basis. Must include only those elements for which there is scriptural basis. I can't read this morning. Whether it be by way of command or example, only what the scripture teaches by way, command or example is meant to be part of worship. This is what happened in the Reformation. All of a sudden the Bible became crucial, central. Before it had always been the table. The, well, Catholic Church is called the altar. It was in the center and they may have had a little bit of a pulpit or something off to the side where the priest would do a homily, usually in Latin, so the people never understood it. But every action was done on the altar in the very center of the sanctuary. And when the Reformation came, they said, no, 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 no. Preaching of the word is central. So they moved the table either down to the floor, changed it from altar to table, or they moved it way in the back so it was behind the pulpit. And the pulpit became center. And that's what you looked at. They may have had the baptismal font out front to, as a reminder that you come to Christ and the, the baptism is the symbol of your coming to Christ through the washing and cleansing of the regeneration of the Spirit. And then you can come to adequately hear the Word of God. But the pulpit was center. Later on, they would move the pulpit and the lectern and the table would be seen again from the back or if it was in the front, it was already seen. But they wanted to make sure that we understood what's important is the Word of God. That's what leads us in worship. And so what, this is one way in which I put it, worship is waiting upon the Lord. That's one way you can look at it. If you take a look at Leviticus, which again, if you're reading through Discipleship Journal, you read this month, you notice what it is. And people say, I hate Leviticus. I get stuck in chapter 7. I don't want to go any further. But you read Leviticus. It is the worship book of the New Old Testament. It tells you exactly how to worship. You come to God through a sacrifice 
by which you have laid your hands on, confessing your sins, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial animal takes your sins, is sacrificed, the blood is put upon the altar before God, and you are forgiven. The other, if you had two goats, what we call the scapegoat, you put your hands on them, confess your sins, and you send it out into the wilderness. A picture of your sins being remembered no more. And all of Leviticus, with all the festivals and feasts and everything that's in there, is simply a way of saying, this is how you are to worship the holy God. And God was setting them up before they left Sinai to say, this is how I want to be worshipped. And Hebrews is simply the new covenant book that describes in further detail Leviticus. It says, now that we have the one who is the exact representation, that's the Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 passage, who is the image of God, Jesus Christ, who is better than angels and better than Moses and better than Melchizedek and better than anything else. He is the access by which we come into the, to the throne of grace of God. Through him you are come to worship God. And basically Hebrews takes all of Leviticus and sums it up in that, in that, uh, in that look. But worship is waiting upon God. And you say, waiting upon God? Well, yeah. You do not come to worship to get. Which is what I hear from a lot of people. Maybe not this present audience, but for people. I didn't get anything out of church today. And my question usually is, did you put anything in? Because waiting is not getting. Waiting is giving. When you come to worship on Sunday morning, you are here to give. Another way of describing worship, it's service. Don't know anyone who gives you service who waits for you to do it. You serve, you give, you put forward. And therefore, when we sing our songs, you sing the songs. I don't care how bad you sing, you sing the songs. Or as the old joke is, that's a joyful noise you made unto the Lord because that's all it is. It's a noise. When you hear the preaching, you listen to the preaching. You take notes. You take time to understand it. You are giving. You not only give a few hours on Sunday morning, but you give and you are giving and giving by taking in as well. If you receive something, that's the God's gift to you. If you receive, it is simply Him using what you are giving to come back to you. And maybe you come out of service and say, I didn't get a thing. So good. You gave. That's what's important. It's one of the reasons we take an offering. It's a symbol of reminding that you are called to give. To give is better than to receive. Someone famous said that. Uh, it's quoted by someone else who's famous. If you don't know, it's an axe. Waiting is described in the scriptures. And, and I gave you two passages. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord. It also from uh, Psalm 62, 5 to 8, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The Hebrew word for wait is being intertwined. It's like when you build rope. You take strands of hemp or you take strands of string and you intertwine them. And in the intertwining, you gather and you make something stronger than the single piece of string. Worship is intertwining yourself with God. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait, intertwine 
in silence, for my help is from Him. Worship is connect, not more than connecting, but allowing yourself to be connected by God, with God, for God. And that's what you're doing when you come into worship. And worship in this age, in this new age, not capital N, capital A, but in this new age of the scriptures is by spirit and truth. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? She tries to change the whole pattern of conversation because Jesus is centering in upon her sin. He says, well, our people worship here in Samaria. Your people worship in Jerusalem. Which is better? Paraphrase. And Jesus said, there coming a day and an age in which we will not worship here or in Jerusalem, but we will worship in spirit and in truth for God is a spirit. God is spirit himself. We are called to worship in spirit and truth. Now you can take that one of two ways. Because that word spirit in the original is neither capitalized, it's, it's usually small. If you have a New American Standard, they will sometimes take the name of God and capitalize it. But if they capitalize it, what they mean is that worship is to be done by the Holy Spirit, energized along with the word, spirit and truth. Or if it's a small s, it means your spirit, that would mean the core of who you are. And it is worship is to be done with everything that you have, or the whole heart and soul aligned with the word of God, spirit and truth. Either way, you get to the same point. That worship is aligning and intertwining yourself with God. And that's what you're called to do. That's why you don't have graven images. Because you are falsifying your worship. You're saying, that is my God. And that's not what it's called to be. And so in your outline, I took a look and the, I took the liberty of outlining for you some different ways to look at worship. Personal worship or personal and family worship throughout the week where you read the Word of God, you pray, you get yourself a good hymnal with a full range of hymns from the first century out to the 21st century, and you sing, or at least you read them. Or if you're familiar with the, the tune, you may sing them. If you, like me, sometimes you sing them, you sing them silently so I don't wake up Peg with this awful noise that comes out of my study. Or you're spending time personally. It is also, worship is something you do week long. Not just personally, but it's a pattern of worship. And this is why I gave you that pattern. Sunday. A day of rest, a day in which we gather together to intertwine ourselves and uh, I'll add not only with God but with one another, to be with one another, to talk with one another. But you are taught and you praise and you then take sun Sunday afternoon to reflect upon what you were taught and the praise, and what took place. Sunday morning, you get up early, and you get your coffee, and your breakfast, and you get clothed and ready, and you get to church before it's supposed to begin. Sorry, John. You get to church early, so you can commune, commune with people that are around there. I, I liken it this way. You work for a boss, and the boss says, be here at 9 o'clock. And if you show up at 9.01, he looks at you and says, you're late. That's one. You do it another time, he says, you're late. That's two. And it goes in your record that you were late. You wouldn't treat your boss the way you sometimes treat the church, correct? Well, he went from teaching to meddling. <laughs> okay? Sunday afternoon is thinking. Then you have Monday to Tuesday, Monday to Wednesday. Monday to Wednesday 
is reflecting back upon Sunday. How well did I do? You take what you've learned and you go over it, the passages, and you drive it deep into the soul of what was said so that it just wasn't something went passing by, but you thought about it, you really reflected upon it. Then you go from Thursday to Friday, Thursday to Saturday. And here is where you make the shift. You go from the previous Sunday to the next Sunday. You think about what's coming up. If you get a copy of the lectionary, you have a good idea of what John is going to be teaching. If you have a copy of the Heidelberg Catechism, you know what I'm teaching. And you spend the time doing your own study. So when somebody says something up front, you go, I didn't see that. Or I didn't see that. Whoa! But you've done your own study and you've been preparing. You pray for the leadership, whether it's up front or in the back, whether it's the musicians or the, or the ones who run the sound system. You pray for this congregation and for its people, saying, Lord, help them to arise and be alert and ready to come on Sunday morning to pray. And you, you're praying for the worship service and you're preparing yourself. You're looking at your calendar for Saturday night and saying, yeah, I can't do that because if I don't come in till 2 a.m., it's real tough to get up and be there by 9.25 and be ready. I got to change my calendar. Back to meddling. And then Saturday night, you get ready. You make sure your smartphone is charged, your tablet is charged, your paper Bible was out with some paper in it to take notes. And you're, you know, like we used to do, you set your clothes out so you know what you're going to wear. I mean, Saturday and I think, what am I going to wear tomorrow? Well, I'm going to wear something, that's for sure. <laughs> and I already have it picked out. And I think about it. And Saturday night, you're getting ready. You get to bed early. You get a good night's rest. You make sure that you're going to be alert because Sunday is the most important day of the week. It is a day that you get to meet God and God's people and give praise and fellowship with one another. That's the personal. Then there's a the corporate side of it, and that is weekly worship. Corporate side, and I put this in your in your outline, it centers around praise and prayer, proclamation, and I, I probably if I wanted to have four Ps, I would have said portrait, that is the sacraments, since that's the only true picture of Christ. And what you have there in that, that box, the table, is what's commonly known as the order of worship, especially throughout the centuries. Remember, we were not the first ones to develop the church. It's been going on for centuries, and God has been using throughout the centuries to fine-tune how we are called to worship. If you take a look at Leviticus, Leviticus has not only the sacrifices, but it has a feast, and it has a pattern for the year by which the people of God were called to worship. And so in our own age, we have what we call a lectionary, a reading through the, system, the, the uh, seasons. Today is the last day of Epiphany. The light goes out after today. And, because Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and then we're into to Lent. Well, that is a just taking Leviticus and uh, applying it to those who live after Christ. How do we spend time thinking about Christ? and being Christians. And that's the pattern. You have in that table a call to worship, which is like the trumpet call of Leviticus to call the people to worship. You have praise, which is adoration. It's like waving the, the palm or waving the uh, offering and the palms of adoration. You have prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon. 
That is, it's like placing your hands upon that sacrificial animal. In the prayer of confession, you take your, that which you need to confess corporately as individually, and you're placing it upon Christ. And then you hear the assurance of your pardon. Not that the priest or the pastor can, can absolve you of your pardon, but you hear that because you've confessed your sins, Christ God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You, you recite the creed because you're expressing the common faith of the church as a whole. You go to scripture reading where you're going to hear the word of God and you listen attentively to what is taking place, not thinking, man, he, he didn't say that word right. No, you're listening to what the word has to say. And then you get to the pastoral prayer, which is a priestly prayer. Not that it has to be done by a pastor, but it is a, it's like the priest who came into the temple with the prayers of the people and he offers them unto God. He is a go-between. He takes the needs and concerns of the people and he offers them up to God. And as he speaks, you are listening and you are going either to yourself or sometimes out loud, amen. So be it. Yep. Please, Lord, do that. Do that. That's the pastoral prayer. You have the offering, which is the dedicate of yourself to God, just as the individual in Leviticus would give an animal, dedicated it to God and for its sacrifice. Again, praise, where you center yourself back upon God before you get to listen to the word being proclaimed. And you have a sermon. And that replaces the animal sacrifice because what you're doing is you're reminding in every sermon that Christ was sacrificed for your sins. And that's your only hope. You see Christ in the fullness of who he is. And after that comes the sacraments, which are the portrayal, the, pro the uh, visible proclamation of the verbal word. And finally, you end by praising as a response and thanksgiving that then moves into the benediction, the benediction being a good word, not a good word from the pastor to the people, but a good word about God to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and turn to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and be gracious. Grant to you his peace. You're speaking a good word over the people. That has been worship through the centuries and that has been the idea of taking all of Leviticus and putting it into one service. That's what it is. Now, the beauty of this church, as I talked a little bit Monday night with the elders when I knew I was going to do this, is they said, we are reformed. That is, we want to be forming anew. Where we find out we are deficient, let's add. And so they're thinking about this pattern. Maybe not after I mentioned it this morning, but they're thinking about it. And you ought to think about, is this the proper way that we ought to worship? More than what we're doing now. Adding in some elements that need to be there. That we leave up to the elders and to, uh, for you to consider. That is the prescription. Then finally, in the few minutes I have, the prohibition. May we not make any images at all? The answer, God may not and cannot be imaged in any way. As for creatures, though they may indeed be imaged, yet God forbids the making or keeping of any likeness of them, either to worship them or to serve God by them. And I gave you a couple passages. The Hebrew, uh, not Hebrews, Habakkuk 2 passage is beautiful because it talks about idols and it ends by saying two things. One, the idols have no breath in them. There's no life in idols. But God is enthroned upon in, in, in his heaven. Let all the earth keep silent. Shut your mouth before God because he is so great and marvelous. Second Kings 18 is Hezekiah, the king who is an iconoclast. That's the one, he, one who tears down idols and helped move them. What's at stake is adding to the word 
through improper imagination. And again, like I said, you can imagine scenes, but you cannot imagine God. You can't put them in any carved image or any image in your mind. I don't know about you. I've heard this people talk about why the big guy up in heaven. Or they think of him as a grandfather who's sitting in heaven rocking in his chair looking at his grandchildren or his children doing what they're doing going, oh my, oh my, oh my. That is a carved image in your imagination. And it affects how you deal with God. If God is simply up in heaven rocking on a chair, then you can do anything you want here on heaven. And if he's a grandfather who will give you everything you want, if he's a big genie in the sky, then that means, hey, I can do anything I want and I'll get away with it. Not the word of God. What is disallowed is, is to act in any manner we are pleased to do. Um, and I gave you, again, Isaiah 40 passage. They took a, put, a piece of wood that will not rot because they knew most wood rots and their idol would be gone. They formed it around silver and gold and they did that. Or the, the passage I like is Exodus with a golden calf. Joshua and Moses are coming back down the mountain after getting the Ten Commandments, which the people had heard. Deuteronomy tells us they heard God say those words. They heard him say, no graven image. And they decided because Egypt wasn't out of Israel yet, they needed a God that they could see. So they brought all their gold and they put it in a pot and, and fashioned a golden calf. I love Aaron's response when he got caught. Moses goes to Aaron and says, what in the world did you do? Moses, Moses, Moses. I, the people put the gold in the pot and out popped this golden calf. It just poof. Well, there's a miracle. <laughs> and you guys say, how silly does Aaron think Moses is that something like that happened? Never would have happened. He says, but that's all that an idol is. The West... And those are kind of pictures of that. Westminster Larger Catechism, I put it down there for you to use as a time of confession that you would do, might have done any of these things. But this also explains why statutes and pictures were destroyed and even stained glass windows in the Reformation. They said, we don't want anything that has a likeness of God. They wanted to get rid of them. They, received as, they were seen as carved images which can only steal worship from God. And if you think about how they, how they do and how your own carved images of God steal your worship, you see why God said, no, no carved image. Can we have images of human beings and of animals? Sure, we can have great paintings. But we cannot imagine God. Imagine what that does to the Sistine Chapel. The very core of the chapel is an image of God reaching out to give life to Adam. And you have this image of God, a grandfatherly figure. It says, doesn't that change how you look at God? How you do that? Now, Sistine Chapel's in the Vatican. Vatican has no problem with that thing. If it had been in Germany, you would not know about the Sistine Chapel and that image because it would have been taken down. And yet we'll pay good money to go see it. Meddling again. Oh, man, I can't help. It even has to do with human beings. In the Reformed background, we have some very famous Johns. John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, John Weiss. <laughs> we <have laughs> go, no, no. And we can make idols out of them. Well, Calvin said this, and Knox said this, and Jonathan Edwards, wow, he was the greatest one. And if we elevate them 
to that kind of status. They were human beings. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. And we're still trying to say, why did he own slaves if he was a, a, a preacher and a teacher of the Word of God? Different subject, different day. But we all know they have feet of clay. In short, what this commandment says is we will not tolerate, God will not tolerate any competition with himself. You cannot have God and something else. And you have to get rid of the something else. It's a scourge of every generation that we have false misleading teachings that lead to false worship. And those teachings and those images must be eradicated because he is to be, God is, is to be so highly regarded and honored and glorified by adherence to the word of God since there is no other better symbol of who God is than the word that he has given to us. We are to be like the angels around the throne of grace in, ha- in Revelation 4 and 5. Worthy are you to receive honor and praise and glory and might. For you are the God of the universe. And to Jesus, worthy are you to receive the same praise. Because you are the one who has provided and bought for yourself a people of God's own possession. That is the only image that we have of a God who is superlative above everything else. You think about that. Spend Sunday to Monday to, well, this afternoon through Wednesday reflecting upon that in your life and then get ready for next Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, there is no one greater than you. (laughs) To whom can we compare you? And to whom could we ever imagine you to be? No one. Nothing. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have spent our time in vain imagination and when we've created these images of, of you in our own life. Help us to eradicate them, to tear down them and to smash them even as they did in the Reformation so that you and your, the image we have from your word would be the true image of who you are. And Lord, help us to do so so that we may indeed proclaim the true God to people who do not know you and that they may see the false images that have been portrayed are nothing and are to be disregarded. And you and the true image of who you are is to be loved and adored, worshipped, and given total commitment by you, by we, your people. For we ask it in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen.